Greetings and welcome to another installment of Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King is a an intensive study of the book of Acts. Well, not super intensive, but we're going over it in kind of a, uh, a 30,000-foot view of the book of Acts, taking an overview, not taking it necessarily verse by verse, but definitely account by account and chapter by chapter as we see uh, the most important things come to the surface in an overall view of it like this. And today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, and all that we've been through with the Apostle Paul so far in the book of Acts and all his various adventures and different cities he's gone to and, and the messages that he has preached, we come to a, an exception. We come to Acts chapter 20, starting about, about verse 17 today, in which he addresses the Ephesian elders. And this is the only one of his sermons in the book of Acts that is a sermon exclusively to the people of God. It's not evangelistic. He's not preaching to non-believers. He is having a discourse with the elders of the church. And so we get a peek inside about what church, uh, Paul's passions are concerning the church and how the church ought to be cared for and how the church ought to be handled. It's called Passion of the Preacher, uh, these uh, two sermons. Because there's a similar tone here to Jesus' own journey toward Jerusalem, in which we saw last time that in Luke 9.51, Luke said this about Jesus, uh, that, he, that he himself had set his face toward Jerusalem. And we now see that Paul, in much the same way, is setting his face toward Jerusalem, knowing the danger awaits. Now, not knowing his you know, that he was going to be crucified on a cross as Jesus did. Jesus knew quite the specifics of what was going to happen. Paul doesn't have that kind of knowledge, but nevertheless, he does have knowledge by the Spirit that things are going to get ugly in Jerusalem. And secondarily, I call this the passion of the preacher because in this passage of chapter 20, we see some of the things that really show us the passions of the Apostle Paul. What is it that really drove this man? What was it that he really desired for his fellow believers and for the churches to which he ministered? Well, last time we looked at the first 12 verses of the chapters, and then in between what there is is there's a summary of part of the journey. Uh, last time we spoke about Eutychus who fell out the window and died but was raised by Paul and they were not a little comforted. And we saw two passions of his last time, encouragement and support. In other words, he was very much about building up, encouraging churches. He was also about supporting and bringing support to the churches that were in need around Jerusalem. This time, uh, in the verses 13 through 16, we hear of more journeying, more various places they went to. And we find that the Apostle Paul had purposely skipped stopping at Ephesus because he knew he, he would end up spending too much time there. However, what he did do was he sent for the Ephesian elders to meet him at the coast uh, while he was on his journey so that he could speak with them. And what we're going to do is we're going to drop in on this conversation that they have. So this is where we'll join it in the scriptures here in Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 17. What I want you to look for as we read is look for what drives Paul. What is he passionate about? And you're going to see a lot of things, but we're going to see three things really come to the surface. Mission, reputation, and shepherding. Let's begin then. Now from Miletus, he, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived 
the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you and thank you for your servant Paul. We thank you for his great ministry. We thank you for his great example. And we thank you that all that he was and all that he did is glory and honor to Jesus Christ who called him, who appointed him an apostle to the Gentiles, who strengthened him in every way in which he needed to be strong, and even allowed him to be weak in those ways in which it served the gospel of truth to be weak. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you for this example. We ask you, Lord, this day, open us up to what you would have us to be and to do. And give us your spirit to understand these words and to employ them in our lives to further the gospel ministry. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, there we have a, a very passionate plea to the Ephesian elders. And there's you can't help but see the great emotion of this, that the word tears appears twice. And then at the end, the word weeping appears, that this is a... a uh, I guess, a discourse drenched in tears. It is very intense and very strong. But I want to point out three things here that really drove 
the Apostle Paul. And the first of those things would be mission. I want you to take a look in verses 18 through 21. He begins with the idea of mission and he ends with the idea of mission. And and the with particular focus on the idea of his character, his reputation, which will actually be our second point. So here in the first point about his mission, uh, we want to talk about this. And these things are intertwined because as I introduce his mission and the next point will be his reputation, I want to point something out. In the Christian life, part of our reputation is our dedication to our mission. But a great part of our mission rests upon our very own reputation. Now, look how Paul defines his mission in verse 24 here. It is, first of all, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. It's the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus. And what exactly is this ministry? This word ministry just means a service. So this service that he received was to do what? It says, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In a nutshell, that is how Paul saw his appointment by Jesus, is to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel, of course, bringing the good news that Jesus came into the world to save those who would believe in him. And this good news is all about grace. That's why it's good news, because the law had already come. Mankind has demonstrated since the beginning our inability to build ourselves up toward God, to overcome our sin and and to reach God. Because even if we were to somehow be able to build up good works and credit and walk in such a way, we would still be reaching up with filthy hands to grasp hold of God who would not have it. And so this is... This gospel is the good news that by grace we can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this gospel, this good news, he partially defined it back in verse 21 when he says this, he testified uh, to the testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the first sign of that faith, the first sign that we truly believe, the the way in which this gift is unwrapped, so to speak, is through repentance. Repentance is the first command that John the Baptist came with. It's the first command that Jesus came preaching with. And it is the consistent command of the apostles. Repentance being this integral part, this first step of the Christian life in response to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that is not the entire gospel. The gospel has many facets. You'll find another very helpful summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the beginning as he begins to uh, introduce and really expound upon the idea of the resurrection, that the gospel includes the death of Christ for sins. That's the only purpose statement given there in 1 Corinthians 15, that he died for sins. He was buried He was raised and he appeared. And that is the gospel as concisely defined there in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, there's obviously more to it because if we notice in verse 31 of Acts chapter 20, Paul mentions that he was in Ephesus for three years. And during that time, he was preaching, as he said, the whole counsel of God. 
And in verse 20, he says, anything that was profitable. And he preached it publicly in large gatherings, and he preached it house to house. Paul's ministry was multifaceted, but a review of his behavior in the book of Acts and his messages that he gives in the letters, we can see clearly Paul's first love was to break new ground with the gospel, constantly pushing it into places that had not heard it. And that was is what we have seen him do here in the book of Acts. But now look in verses 22 and 23 here. He is headed to Jerusalem, and it's very clear that danger awaits him. Look at this in verse 24, how it reads here. Verse 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. And so for him to stay on course, to finish the mission is more important than even his own safety, even his own life to testify to the grace of God. And in verse 25, he says a very painful statement to these uh, precious people that he has gathered with. He says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Let that sink in for a minute. Of all he said, this is what hurt them the most. At the end of the discourse, that and what left them weeping was this statement. Look what it says in verse 38. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. This is painful and this is difficult. And we must, in order to put this in perspective, go back to where this journey, this third missionary journey of his, really took a turn. And that's in chapter 19, verse 21. While he was at Ephesus, this came to him. After certain events there, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also go to Rome. So that is him setting his face toward Jerusalem with a mind to ultimately go to Rome to preach the gospel to them. He says this in the opening of the letter to the Romans, which he probably wrote from Corinth around 50 or 51 AD. He says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, see he had not been to Rome before that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now he reiterates this desire in chapter 15 as he closes this letter to the Romans. And if you like, he says here in chapter 1, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And in a way, the entire book of Romans, this, this very concise theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see it, uh, one of the most theologically rich books of the New Testament 
is yet a summary, a preview for the Roman church that he intended to go to and teach even more. But I want you to go back now to Acts 19.21, and I want you to notice a key phrase here. He resolved, it says, in the Spirit. This cannot be overstated enough that Paul, in the Spirit, desired to go to Jerusalem and on to Rome. And as we see it here in chapter 20, verse 22, we're studying. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Paul is not going rogue here, and we'll talk much more about this next time, but he knows danger lies ahead. He knows somehow he's going to end up in Rome. And so I want to stand back for a moment, and I want you to see this. I want you to try to understand the passion and the emotion going on in this passage. He is so mission-obsessed, so determined to follow his calling, which was the call of the Holy Spirit, the, the commission of Jesus Christ to be an apostle, to the Gentiles, that he will never again see these people whom he obviously loves. Now, even more, the Spirit has revealed to him that he would suffer attack and that they would have, that they would suffer attack and that they would have to face it without him. And the question has to come, why would he do that? Why would he leave them just before their time of need? Why would he leave these people that he loves knowing that imprisonment awaits him? Well, let me, let me rephrase that question. How did Jesus do that? How did Jesus go to the cross? Can you imagine any more painful? I doubt any of us have had more painful days in our lives than those disciples had the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he knew them and he loved them and he had spent years with them on the road teaching them and, and knowing them and he did it anyway. Why? Because it needed to be done. Jesus ultimately had to leave them again after appearing to them at the resurrection. Three days was short, but then he spent some 40 days or so teaching them other things, revealing things to them, appearing to as many as 500 at a time. But then he ascended into heaven because he had work to do there and he had to send the Holy Spirit. It was necessary for him to go to heaven before sending the Holy Spirit. And he left him again, never to fellowship with those men again, never to break bread with them again until one day that they would be together again. But they would go through so much in the interim, all of them having lost their lives for the gospel. Sometimes our mission takes us away from what we love, from what is comfortable. And the question is, how are we able to do that? And the answer is very simply this, trust in Jesus Christ. It's ultimately by faith by which we walk. And we're going to speak much much more about this next time. And we don't want to forget what we're talking about here is the passion of Paul for the mission. And he's able to, to exercise that passion. He's able to cling to his mission. He's able to walk forward by faith. And we'll see next time how he's able to do this. But nevertheless, we see him doing it. Dedication to mission was modeled by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I brought it up. Look what it says in Mark 8.33. Uh, Peter rebukes him and, uh, and 
you know, Jesus begins to speak plainly that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the Gentiles and be raised again and ignoring the part that he'd be raised again. Peter says, no, this can't happen to you. This is unacceptable to happen to you. And turning and seeing his disciples after Peter gives him this rebuke, he returns, turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus modeled mission over all else at this point, even the great difficulty, even having to rebuke his, his chief disciple, Peter. And this is uh, also reiterated Matthew chapter 16, uh, where he began to show that he must suffer and many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and on the third day rise again. And it's still not settled after this rebuke of Peter and after rebuking him for not understanding that his mission and everything else, even when he was uh, taken and arrested to be tried and ultimately crucified, uh, Peter steps forward and tries to resist. And it says in John 18, 11, it says this, Jesus said to Peter after Peter struck off and cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, his mission. His mission came first. That was his dedication. He had to drink the cup. That's what he prayed over in the garden just before this. And that's what he marched off with those soldiers to go to, was to drink the cup that the Father had for him. And that is what Paul is doing in going to Jerusalem. He's drinking the cup. He is dedicated to the mission. And we likewise are to have this same attitude toward our mission. Look what it says in Luke 9:62. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's no turning back. There's no looking back. Mission was a great passion of the Apostle Paul. And related closely, as I alluded to earlier, to mission is the idea of reputation. This is where he began his discourse. He picks it up again in verses 26 and 27. He mentions it in verse 31. He mentions it in verses 33 to 35 with reputation. This is all the idea of his reputation. Now, if you were keeping track, as I mentioned, the verses that he speaks of his reputation in, that is nine out of 17 verses. It's solidly half the content of this discourse. Paul appeals to his character and behavior among them. And that only makes sense because this is an integral part of the gospel. If the gospel preaches repentance, then those who claim to follow the gospel and therefore proclaim the gospel must themselves have experienced repentance. There must be some life change. There must be some holy living. There must be a not sinless perfection, but a dedication to proper conduct among those who would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Proper conduct supports the proclamation we make. We talk about the love of God. We talk about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the need to repent of sin, the deadly effect of sin, the importance of holy living and walking with the Lord. So we lose credibility when we preach from tainted lives and selfish motives. And it cannot be hidden from others. Our character, our behavior is seen by all. And our enemy, Satan, is often called the accuser of the brethren. 
and he will look for any opportunity to expose the weaknesses and the faults of those who claim to preach the gospel. So this is not just for the gospel preacher. It is for all who are called to proclaim, all who are called to proclaim, to be witnesses, to make disciples. That is all followers of Jesus Christ. Paul himself said, a spring cannot put forth both clean and unclean water. To proclaim a gospel from the midst of a less than exemplary life is to at best give a mixed message. I've included in your notes a great number of cross-references here that will be helpful to you, but I want to go to just a couple very quickly. First of all, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. We understand this, but look at the context in which he says it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yes, we're called to proclaim the gospel, but we're also called to good works that go together, our reputation and our mission. Well, this is stated plainly by Paul in several places that I have given you cross-references for as he writes to the Corinthians, we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And we want to be careful to walk in a way worthy. Look how Peter puts it in his letter. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, non-believers in the context there, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this, these two things are totally inseparable. And as you peruse this passage in Acts chapter 20, you're going to see Paul appeal to several things. He's going to appeal to his service, to his humility, to his courage, that is not shrinking back from proclaiming anything. He's going to appeal to his innocence, He's going to appeal to his balance in having proclaimed the whole gospel, not just playing a one-note tune, so to speak, and not just beating the drum of a particular issue that he was on. He was about preaching the whole gospel. And he will speak of his persistence. He speaks near the end of his self-sufficiency and his contentment, how he didn't want the things of others. He worked to support himself and those who were with him. And then he speaks of his generosity in taking this offering to the people in Jerusalem. He also speaks in verse 19 of tears and trials. He says, with all humility and with tears and with trials. He appeals to this because persecutions, oddly enough, lend credibility to his appeal and to his reputation because he didn't need to be there. This was an intelligent man with great potential and obviously a skill to support himself in a trade, uh, to support himself well for life on the road. And here he is proclaiming the gospel at his own peril. And many times people say, if, if the apostle Paul was so great and so good, why did God allow him to suffer? Well, God called him into suffering. He says that at the beginning, when he speaks to, when the Lord speaks to Ananias in Damascus about Paul, he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for me. Because the suffering endorses the message. Who but a fool would give himself over again and again and again to suffering to proclaim a message that was untrue? So it lends credibility to his, his 
proclamation, his mission could only be explained then by this supernatural compulsion of his. He wasn't in it for any kind of greedy gain. He wasn't getting rich. He wasn't getting famous in any kind of a good way. He was famous among the believers, but that credited him nothing. He was infamous among Rome and the Jews. And so all these things can be summed up in this way. What Paul is passionate about and what he exhibits here can be summed up in love. Love for God to obey and execute his mission and love for the Ephesians to endure all these sufferings and walk blamelessly among them for their own benefit to increase their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the defining attribute of the followers of Christ. Look in John 13, how Jesus states this. He says, I give to you uh, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. Now look at this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Boy, it's powerfully important to understand of all the things Jesus said, people are going to know you by, you're going to do miracles. You're going to speak in tongues. You're going to do all these other things. No, Jesus mentions none of that. He mentions love for one another first and the love demonstrated by Paul's perseverance, his humble walk among them, his self-sufficiency. All these things are, are an outpouring of love for them so that he could give them the gospel message and it could be received. Paul's passion was for mission and for reputation. And finally, for shepherding. I want you to take a look at this uh, passage on shepherding here. I don't have it on the, on the notes, but I will shortly. Uh, another passion for shepherding. Paul has clearly practiced this, caring for the Ephesians as a shepherd for his flock, but now he's passing it on to the Ephesian elders. Uh, first of all, a couple words we need to look at here in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Uh, you see the word elder there in verse 17. He called the elders of the church. This is the word presbyteros, where the Presbyterians get the name of their church. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, is the word episkopos, uh, also translated here as overseers, in um, which the uh, Episcopal Church gets the name of their particular kind of polity. Now, the problem is uh, this word episkopos is elder or overseer, or if you're reading the King James, it's often translated as bishop. But these two words are used interchangeably. And they're really speaking of, in general, elders of the church. And the problem is that the Episcopals, the Presbyterians, will try to find distinctions between the two, but largely they, they fail to really find a distinction between the two. The New Testament model, model for church polity, as far as I can tell, from surveying the book of Acts, from surveying the, the letters by the apostles, is simply this, that each local congregation would have a multiplicity, that is a, a plurality, of elders slash bishops slash overseers, whatever you want to call them. I think it's easiest to call them elders. And among those, one of them would be considered pastor, or like the, as we would say today, maybe the, the preaching elder or the preaching pastor or something among that. But he would be one of peers. He would not be an autocrat on top of everything. He would not even be a CEO, as some people like to say, or a president or anything like that. 
he is one of a multiple elders. So he is among peers who can hold him accountable and provide balance to the leadership model. Um, and so this pastor, which the term just literally means shepherd. Now, also in the church, we see a service role of deacons, as we saw established in Acts chapter 6, and as we see mentioned in the letters. And there's no indication anywhere in the New Testament of elders or bishops ruling over more than one locality. We see these local congregations as basically autonomous with their board or their council of elders. Now, I say that from the context of a Baptist church in which we tend to be a little confused on our terminology. We have deacons that really act as elders, and the pastoral position is some other leadership position. And so we've got two centers of leadership, and that can be a bit confused. But here, we try to function as a council of elders together, the pastor role being a preacher, preaching elder kind of role. But all those polity ideas aside, I want you to see here that this term elder, that these are from Ephesus, that they are, you know, helping to oversee what goes on at Ephesus, and they are to care for or to shepherd the flock. If you look at verses 28 and 29, the word flock shows up twice here. And you'll notice the word flock is highlighted in both 28 and 29, but also the phrase to care for, because that is the verbal form of flock. In other words, to, to care for, to shepherd is what this means. And so these elders are called to shepherd the church of God, as it says here. In this context, they are to shepherd them, to protect them from fierce wolves, as you see there in verse 29. False teachers, charlatans, they were deceitful. These were the ones who had greedy intentions. These were the ones who sought to gain something in wealth or fame or something in bringing it over upon these people. These are people that their greatest error was preaching something other than the true gospel. Now, I want you to see how this reveals Paul's care for them because this is going to happen when he's gone. He's warning them ahead of time and he's entrusting these shepherds to care for the flock. Look at what Paul has done. This is what he's saying to them. Look, this is what I've been among you. This is what I've done for you. But now I'm going to go and I'm not going to see you again. But now you must care for the flock. There's going to be danger. There's going to be an attack from enemies. And you're going to have to carry the day. I will not be here to do it. This is somewhat a coming of age for these elders. And this is somewhat a, 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 a how hard would that be for Paul to let go of that? And that's what I'm trying to come to grips with is, is he has ownership of this. He spent years with these people. He taught them everything. And now he's going to leave and he knows full well that danger is going to come upon him and he won't be there to help. Now he can write letters to them and we have one of those letters. And we find the rest of the story in the letter uh, that's found in the beginning of the book of Revelation to the Ephesian church that apparently they got through that. They overcame that. Of course, they had other problems later on that the letter to the church in Revelation addresses. 
But nevertheless, they do get through this, but he's not there to do it. How difficult that must be. That is the ultimate letting go of the seat of the bicycle, knowing full well they're going to fall, but praying that they'll get up again and the bruises won't be too bad. This is the passion of Paul. And you can see it in his words, how intense he is that this be done right. But what are some encouragements we can take from this today? I want to share some of these with you. First of all is this. When we read about the passion of Paul for the church, we have to know that these are the passions of Jesus Christ for you and your local congregation. All that Jesus has, has commanded concerning elders and all that he commanded through Paul concerning elders is for you. All that Paul was passionate about is showing God's care for you. This is how he cares for his people. The gospel proclamation and a good reputation must also dwell together. And that's the third point there. And and I'll come back to that second point in a moment. Reputation can work without a dedication and mission. People can like you. They can say, you're a nice guy. He's a good guy. And here's the thing. You can be a good guy as a Christian and not have any benefit over those around you because many other people you can look at and say they're a good guy. You do not have to be Christian to be morally upright. You will meet many non-believers who live lives that are exemplary even to believers. The difference is they don't have the ministry of the gospel proclamation. We carry a message that is profoundly important and all the more our lifestyles ought to be above and beyond. Not just free from the big sins, but full of love. That not just that we avoid certain things that would bring on you know, bad reputation, but that we positively embrace the good things that would show forth the love of God, the compassion of Christ for the lost, the, the exemplary treatment of all those who find themselves in a difficulty or in difficult situations in life or whatever, that we embrace them with the love that Jesus Christ did as he saw the crowds and he saw them as harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. The gospel proclamation and a good reputation must dwell together to be effective. And now I want to focus in on this middle point here. Put yourself in a position to care and to be cared for. Because all the care that Paul has shown here for the Ephesian elders and all that he has done for them and all that they did for him, as we read in the letters, many of these people that Paul ministered to also ministered to him and they prayed for him and they gave to the offering for the church in Jerusalem and they, they cared for him when he was sick and they, they sometimes sent him money to help him on his mission trips. All this is done in the context of the local church. If you are not involved with the local church, you have no reason to expect a benefit from shepherding. You have no reason to expect blessings from God. You have no reason to expect any kind of help because you're not in a position to receive it. Now, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that those who would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness would have all their necessities provided to them by God. 
that is entirely in the context of the local church and is not to be found any other place. When you read about love, you read about God's intending to love you through the church. When you read about the law, you're reading about God wants a world like that for you, a world of law-abiding people for you. When you read about Paul's passion, you read into it that this is what God desires for you and for your life, not just for you to model and exhibit, but for you to enjoy and to benefit from. And that is entirely done in the context of the local church. Those in Ephesus who were not part of the congregation there did not benefit from Paul's ministry and were not there to be a benefit and a help and a, and a, a comfort to Paul. And so as we read these things, we want to be very careful to encourage the, the right understanding of these things. Now, let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the passion of your servant Paul. We thank you for all that it meant to the church in Ephesus. We thank you for all that you did, Lord, to secure these beautiful things for your people. And we pray, Lord, that you indeed will be known and glorified through it. And we pray, Lord, that you will put us in a position to not only receive the blessings of church fellowship, but to be a blessing within a church fellowship. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And I encourage you, as always, if you have any kinds of questions, any kind of needs, email us. Let us know. I respond to those emails personally, and I receive those personally right to my phone. So please email us at whitethronebaptist.gmail.com. Uh, learn more about us at whitethron.org, and there you can get directions, even if you want to pay us a visit here in beautiful Carrollton, Kentucky. So I pray all goes well with you. God bless.